What a finish from Balogun! Oh, Benyera, beautifully done! Bobby Young, surely! There it is! Mbappe now! Wonderful! Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast. We have another bumper episode for you today as we look back at all the action from week 13 where Paris Saint-Germain flexed their muscle against Monaco. Nice are proving they really are France's most Italian of towns with another 1-0 win to keep pace with the champions. Fabio Grosso says Lyon need a reality check and Gennaro Gattuso says his Marseille side are Malachias. It was only going to be a matter of time. Baptiste Reynaud runs the rule over Rennes' season so far and the impact of returning coach Julian Stefan. Jonathan Johnson tells us all about Montpellier's cult-figured captain, Teji Savanier, And Andreas Evagora packs us into his very own time machine and takes us back to 2017 when a precocious young talent and an old tiger took Monaco to the league and title. We also have the winner of our Deja Who competition for last month and give you the chance to win a Remy Cabela Lille jersey. We'll be looking ahead to a big week of European fixtures for the league and clubs as well and the next two rounds of Le Championnat. All of that with me, Robbie Thompson, Jonathan Johnson and Andreas Evagora. Don't forget to find us on all your podcast platforms to like, subscribe, follow and recommend Join the conversation on Twitter or X at League One underscore ENG. And of course, you'll find all the latest news, reviews, interviews, video highlights, and everything on the league's official YouTube channel and league1.com. So let's start with a review of all the action from round 13. It all started on Friday night when Paris Saint Germain dismantled Monaco by five goals to two. Monaco have this reputation as being PSG's bogey team. They are on occasion, but on occasion it comes royally unstuck, and that's exactly what happened at the Parc des Princes on Friday night. Um, there were a couple of big goalkeeping mistakes early, um, one for each team, Donnarumma's particularly getting caught in possession, which uh, made a game of it early on before Paris Saint-Germain just proved all too good in the second half. Andreas? Um, Paris Saint-Germain, that's six wins in a row now. They haven't lost since Nice got that narrow victory over them. Are they really hitting their stride now? What, did you like what you saw on Friday night? Well, I certainly like what I, what I saw. It was it was a really good game of football for the neutral, that's for sure. Plenty of goals, um, plenty of chances and saves, uh, an open game. I think from an attacking point of view, PSG absolutely are hitting their stride. They, at times, were really good. Um, you know, they've got that. That, 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 that attack that's got such pace and intensity. Uh, there was a lot of talk about Dembele ahead of the game and always not scoring. He had a brilliant game. Um, you know, that, that goal of his was a thing of beauty, that first touch. Just to add a, a bit of um, maybe the other side of, 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 of the coin, I think defensively PSG have some issues. I mean, some coaches say there's like two sorts of goals you can see. There's ones that are just football. You can't really do much about. And there's ones that, are there because of we have maybe haven't done enough 
on the on the training pitch. And those two goals PSG conceded, I'm a little bit worried about them because, um, you know, Donnarumma's footwork is better, not what it could be. Balogun's goal was, um, I, I don't think Hernandez's best position is at centre-back, I must say. Uh, Marquinhos was injured. And I think that's something they really have to look at. Um, Hernandez, some of his tackling early on, on, on Balogun, there was, there was one incident where he, he took Balogun's arm behind Balogun's back. He shoved, with his right hand, he shoved his elbow into his back and with the other, he, he turned his wrists. I mean, it wasn't so much the, the, the dark arts as martial arts. So poor old Balogun was, well, I thought he had a good game, but he did come on the end of a bit of stick. So to answer your question, I think attacking-wise, that PSG scored three goals in, was it five games in a row now? They've added five to that. Mm-hmm. Defensively, um, they've got a, They've got to allow uh, their opponents far fewer chances, especially with that Newcastle game coming up. But the team, I think, is gelling, and I think it's on the right path. Well, let's let's talk about that Newcastle game coming up then, JJ, because PSG are leading the league. They're only just ahead of Nice, but this is a big match coming up for them in midweek in the Champions League, and, and they've really blown hot and cold so far in Europe this season. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thankfully for them, uh, they've blown more hot, cold at home uh, at this moment in time. So they'll need another one of those impressive performances at Parc des Princes, uh, like the ones that we saw against Dortmund uh, and also Milan. Uh, I do agree with Andreas. I think defence is now starting to be a bit tricky for PSG. I think when they were uh, allowing certain players to leave uh, over the summer, they probably needed to know a little bit more about the extent of Nuno Mendes' injury before allowing uh, Juan Bernat, for example, to, to move on. Uh, and you could say that they're probably one body light in terms of uh, you know central defensive depth as well. You, you see at the moment without Marquinhos sort of what that means for Luis Enrique in terms of sort of rejigging that back line. Uh, and whichever way you slice it, whether you've got you know Mukiele potentially playing at left back, uh, or uh, as a makeshift central defender, it's not ideal. So, you know, I think that uh, we can expect to see Luis Enrique put PSG onto the front foot uh, and try to exploit that attack, which is now starting to really uh, find its feet and, uh, and hit its stride. But the, I think the position that fascinates me the most coming into this Newcastle game, and uh, it was really interesting to see against Monaco, was sort of how PSG fare in terms of the midfield. Now that Warren Zaya Emery is out uh, until the winter break, obviously a big blow over the international break. Fantastic to see him debut at senior level uh, at such a young age, third youngest in France's history. But equally to lose him, uh, you know, for the next sort of month or so is a a big blow for PSG because he's been a huge part of the way that they play uh, so far this season. But Fabian Ruiz now has an opportunity to come into that midfield unit uh, and prove to, to be the glue that PSG need in big games, not only against Newcastle, but also uh, Dortmund away in the final round of uh, Champions League group games. So I think that's going to be one that's really, really fascinating to watch. And, you know, he put in a, a good performance against Monaco, I have to say. I think he is a very underrated player at times. I do think that there is plenty for Luis Enrique to ponder uh, defensively, but in terms of the attack, uh, you know, they look in pretty good nick. You look at how those predatory instincts have not really abandoned Gonzalo Ramos, despite the fact he hasn't been playing as much as he would have liked. Uh, incidentally, uh, just last week, PSG 
uh, actioned uh, that option that they had to, to buy Gonzalo Ramos outright from Benfica. So he is now settled um, and, and focused on his future. So, you know, it, there's no two ways about it. It's a huge game for PSG coming up against Newcastle and one that they really must take advantage of uh, if they want to finish in the top two in this group. Well, it really is the group of death for PSG in the Champions League. They currently sit second in that group behind Dortmund, Milan just a point behind. But but realistically, any way you cut it up, Paris Saint-Germain could be top of that section after the game in midweek or bottom of the section and facing the earliest earliest exit from the Champions League proper um, since the Qataris took over the club. So that would be a a big shock to the system and a real blow to, to everything that Luis Enrique is trying to do at the moment. Andreas, Nice are the only side, since Monaco have dropped off the rails now, Nice are the only side that can really seem to keep pace with them. Farioli is doing an amazing job. Defensively, they are so solid. I mean, the statistics are outrageous. Ten clean sheets, it's a European high. Um, just four goals conceded, it's a European low. In, in 13 matches undefeated. I mean, is that are they really the archetypal Italian side? I mean, is this Inter from the 1960s all over again on the Côte d'Azur? <laughs> yeah, you've got a good memory there because I think it's been a while since Italian teams have been defensive and Catanaccio and all that. But you, yeah, you've got a, a close bond to Italian football, haven't you? So let, let's go with the cliché. Uh, nice is very close to Italy as well, isn't it? Their defence is just... Who was it on the pod a couple of weeks ago saying, well, Nice can't go on winning every game 1-0. Well, they can, clearly. <laughs> They've done it again. <laughs> and after the match, um, uh, Ferrioli was saying, we put our heart and soul in defending. You know, it's this great. Sort of, it's so important to, it's so important to them. It is, but look, I, defensively, they're superb. Um, Todibo, who wasn't playing at the weekend, has been sensational for me this season. Uh, they brought in Rosario, who just about did okay. I'm again. I'm going to raise the flag for Melvin Bard, who I, I think he's one of the most underrated players out there. Is it because he's called Melvin Robbie? Is, he just doesn't have a footballer's name. Or, he, he's an exceptional player. Or, or the fact that he's trying to look like a Bard now with his hair <laughs> growing long and slicked back. He looks like some sort of Shakespearean tragicomic <laughs> character. Is it a harder sell for an agent when you? What, what's this guy's name? Melvin, but you know he's a really good left back. Um, Terra Moffi, who again, Robbie, you 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 nailed it, didn't you? At the start of the season, you said uh, you know Terra Moffi could be a good buy, and he's proving to be exactly that. Another clean sheet, um, and you know, if they keep going like this, why not? A second place um, is there for the taking. So I don't see any other team really. You know, this, Monaco were impressive at the weekend, but I think you know if, certainly if Nice can. Keep defending like this. They've got an excellent team ethic. Um, why not? They can keep going and uh, and get in the top three, which would be a great performance for a first season in Ligue 1. Well, let, I mean, it really is a two-horse race at the moment. Nice are the only side to have beaten PSG as well. I mean, they have played the top teams and got the results they needed as well. So I think we're all sort of thinking it's Paris Saint-Germain now because Nice won't be able to go the distance. But they're doing it. And I think one of the most incredible things about this hermetically sealed Nice defence is the fact that Dante, or Dunch, the captain, is 40 years old. I mean, what other teams in Europe have the best defence in their league with a 40-year-old in the the centre of defence? I mean, this is – I can't think of another team that's performing this well. I mean, Hilton was another Brazilian who played into his – 40s and won the league with Montpellier and it's an, I guess there's 
there is a, a parallel there as well with with this old veteran player. But but what Dante is is achieving is is absolutely sensational. He he is a remarkable player at the moment. Next up, let's have a chat about what's happening at the other end of the table. JJ, Lil are closing in on Monaco in that fourth place. But rather than talk about Lil, because we know what they're doing and, and what they're doing well, they got um, their, their Canadian striker, Jonathan David, was on the score sheet um, for the first time in an age over the weekend as well. But but the story out of this game, a 2-0 win over Leon. Leon unable to build on that first victory of the season. They are winless at home. It's just a disaster at the moment. And Fabio Grosso, the new coach, brought in to try and turn things around. Are his days numbered, JJ? I think it's difficult to argue that they're not at this moment in time. I think some of what Grosso was saying after the game, after the defeat, uh, is pretty worrying. He's basically saying that Lyon and Lyon fans have to forget what Lyon was as a club. There is no way that that group of fans is going to like hearing that. Uh, you know, very proud of their history, uh, very eager to get back to similar levels. Uh, and at this moment in time, the, the necessary form for that is, is just not forthcoming. Um, you know, and I think given the severity of the situation, uh, you know, given how listless Leon have looked at times, uh, you know, there seem to be problems brewing as well with Lacazette now, obviously, uh, you know, star player in the past, not really able to help the team in the way that he would like on the pitch at this moment in time. You know, it does feel like, you know, Grosso only has, uh, you know, a limited number of games now left, uh, you know, to potentially save his skin. Uh, and you do wonder if, um, you know, sort of that game against Marseille, uh, you know, once it does get replayed, if that's going to have potentially a defining uh, say on, uh, you know, whether Grosso is coach of Leon, uh, sort of when we come back from the winter break, because it does feel like that's the next obvious point for Leon to really consider the situation and, and work out if they're going to make a change ahead of the second half of the season. But I'd say that, you know, given how long it took for Textor to make a decision, let's face it, a decision that we all knew uh, was going to be made on Laurent Blanc's future. Uh, you know, the the odds are not favourable at this moment in time of that move uh, or that decision being taken in time to to salvage something from this season because at this moment in time, Lyon, uh, you know, are Ligue 2 bound uh, unless something massive, uh, you know, changes in and around the club. And I know that there are big sort of sweeping changes that are being made uh, at this moment in time in terms of the hierarchy of the club. If that is enough to save, uh, you know, the the club and the institution, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But certainly in terms of what we're seeing on the pitch at this moment in time, uh, it's not. Yeah, I, I agree with um, with Jonathan. I, I, I crunched a few numbers this morning because, you know, that's the thing I like to do on a Monday morning. I went back to the last time, Robbie, that um, Liga had 18 teams. And I just looked to see how many points you needed to stay up, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, let's say to be in 15th place. And in 2001, it was 38 points. 2002, it was 39 points. The two seasons were a bit different because two went down in one and three went down in the other. But you see what I'm getting at. So briefly, to get to that level, Leon are going to need 31 points in 22 games. And I I struggle to see them getting that much. I mean, Grosso, he's... Well, it's a point and a half a game. Exactly. One and a half points a game, which means you've got to win more than you're drawing. Exactly. And Grosso, as as Jonathan alluded to, he doesn't seem to have an idea of his best team. He's picked seven different teams for seven matches. 
I think I read he's, he's made seven subs at halftime, something like that. That shows he's chopping and changing, and he doesn't have time, Robbie. That's the thing. If this was right at the start of the season, you know, maybe you could build the season, but he, he's running out of time. You're talking 22 games, um, and people say, well, this Leon team's got too much quality to go down. Is it really? You know, they lost so much over the summer with Gusto and Barcola and Lukeba and, and, and Auer, you know, real quality players. I, I'm not sure if they're that quality, and, and the, the, the transfer window is going to be vital. But, you, could, if, you know, if you're a real pessimist, who's going to want to come to Lyon at this stage? So it's, it's a tough, tough season for them. There's no doubt alarm bells are ringing. I mean, by the time, by 15 minutes to go, I was watching the, the match live, and 15 minutes to go, the stadium is half empty. I mean, they're, they're big indicators. And even up until probably midway through the second half, the Leon fans were really, the ultras anyway, were really trying to stay behind their side. They were trying to, to get them back into the game. There were a couple of little half chances. The team did show a little bit of fight as though as though it could happen but yeah by the by the last 10 minutes or so it 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 didn't look good and it doesn't look good i think fabio grosso's right in terms of saying we need to have a reality check that what he's not what he's saying is not to the fans look we're terrible now what he's saying is sending a message to the players saying we are going to go down if something doesn't change now i think he's trying to make the players responsible and up the urgency a little bit, saying, look, we need a, this whole club needs a reality check because unless things change, we're going to go down. In Fabio Grosso's defence, and I put my hand up here, at the start of the season, we weren't allowed to pick Kylian Mbappe for the golden boot. And I, foolishly now with hindsight, went with Alexander Lacazette. So there you go. It shows that, uh, you know, it's not easy, even with the Leon squad that, that, that they have and some of us thought perhaps they would do a little better than they are doing. Lens warmed up for their clash with Arsenal with a 3-0 win in Clermont. So Clermont are also back to losing ways. Eli Wahi got a fantastic goal, a, a, a remarkable header. Followed that up with a red card. He does have a little bit of character, the France under-21 international. Um, I'm a big fan. He's lightning quick. And uh, the goals are going to flow for Lens. And I think it's only a matter of time before perhaps on the European stage, he really starts to fire as well. Brest rolled on a 3-1 win in Montpellier. They're up to seventh place. Metz got the edge in a five-goal thriller in Lorient. Um, Romain Fevre and 17-year-old sensation Ellie Junior Krupi got the goals for Lorient, but it wasn't enough. Uh, fantastic result for Metz. But the other big story we're going to stop on here, um, well, actually, before we get to Marseille, there was also a former Marseille man in Andre Ayew made his return for the first time in eight years to Ligue 1 football, and it lasted just three minutes before he was sent off uh, for Le Havre. So welcome back, Andre, and um, cool your boots. For another week or two, probably just one week for the challenge, in which I don't think it was really a malicious challenge, but uh, it was definitely studs up. Um, not the return he was looking forward to, but Andre, we'll see you in another couple of weeks, hopefully before Christmas, to see how you're faring. But the big news, um, JJ, I'll come to you first on this one, because we spoke about it when Gennaro Gattuso arrived in French football. How was his character going to go? If ever there was a place for it, 
it was Marseille. But um, he doesn't seem to like the place, or not his players at any rate. He went the full, this team is rubbish. I don't understand how they played in that second half. It was just a disaster. 1-1 with Strasbourg. Jonathan Close getting a goal against the side uh, where he came through the youth ranks. But um, a remarkable situation where Gennaro Gattuso, I think in a little way, a little bit more aggressive, but in that Italian way, same as Fabio Grosso with the, the Gattuso diplomacy that we know so well, trying to just get the players to take responsibility for where they are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think if we're looking for some sort of method in the, the madness or the, the anger that we're, we're talking about here on, on Gattuso's part, I think it's probably a calculated gamble in which he's trying to get the fans to sort of get on the players back. Now, we know that sometimes that has a positive effect. Sometimes it can have a negative effect, certainly when, when Marseille are playing at home in front of a boiling Stade Velodrome crowd. But I think Gattuso feels at this moment in time that um, the players are probably going to be held more to account by the fans getting on their back than perhaps by, by what he's saying as the, the sort of new boss coming in, trying to instill these ideas. Uh, and, you know, I think we'll have to see in the next couple of games if it has the, the desired impact. But I think if Gattuso is already sort of gambling and, and, you know, already sort of taking shots at his players, I think we're either going to come up to a, a, a point where the players totally buy into Gattuso's methods or they totally don't buy in uh, at all. Uh, and I think that's at the point where you can perhaps see things threatening to boil over in terms of the fan base. Okay, well, let's have a look at the league table quickly before we look ahead to this week's European action. Paris Saint-Germain lead the way on 30 points, a point behind them, Nice. Then come Monaco. There's already a five-point gap now between the top two down to third place, Monaco. Lille are closing up in fourth. Reims suffered defeat, but they are still there um, in fifth place. Lens are continuing their charge up the table. They're up to sixth now. Remember, Lens had a disastrous start to the campaign as well, but they're starting to find their form. Brest, Loave, a remarkable first return back in Ligue 1 in 15 years for Loave, who are there, minus Andre Ayou as it is. Metz as well have managed to turn things around after a slow start. Ren got back to winning ways under Julien Stefan. That's a big result for them, and we're going to hear a lot more about Ren later. So that's why we haven't spoken about their match against Reims. Nantes, Marseille have slipped to 12th now. Then comes Strasbourg, Montpellier, Toulouse are on a nervous slide down as well, as are Lorient in 16th place. The bottom two, though, who just can't take a trick at the moment, are still Clermont and Olympic Lyonnais. Olympic Lyonnais. We mentioned that match in hand they have against Marseille, but they are bottom of the table, 18th, with just seven points from 12 matches so far. It is a very sorry state of affairs for them. You're listening to Jonathan Johnson, Andreas Evergora, and myself, Robbie Thompson, on Le Beaujeu, the Ligue 1 Uber Eats official podcast. Okay, let's have a look ahead to then European football this week. We've already spoken about Paris Saint-Germain versus Newcastle. I think this is a match, well, that Paris Saint-Germain have to win, make no bones about it, but it will also be, as I suggested at the time in the wake of that terrible 4-1 drubbing at the hands of Newcastle in Northern England, that uh, this is a chance for Paris Saint-Germain to get their revenge and perhaps just uh, show Newcastle that a change of ownership, 
doesn't mean it's all going to happen miraculously and that uh, especially in Europe, it takes a little bit of time. You have to earn your stripes. I'm saying all this, of course, in advance of the, the Champions League game at the Parc des Princes. Um, but I think PSG will prove too strong for Newcastle in what could be um, the game that seals Newcastle's fate as well and sees them with no chance of progressing from the Champions League. Andreas, I want to come to you to chat about Arsenal v Lens. We've touched on Lens, um, Eli Wahi and this side that are, that are finding their form now. They're in third place in that group. Arsenal lead the way. Arsenal are all but in the next round already and can certainly book their place there um, with even just a draw against Lens. But uh, do you think Lens can cause an upset? I think they're capable of causing an upset. I mean, Arsenal will go through with a point. Uh, Lons, as we've discussed, are on a really good run of form. Arsenal, strangely, much better defensively away than at home. Um, they're a little bit jittery at home, and they've got this goalkeeping issue that you know we don't need to go into too much, but it's it's, it's uh, causing a lot of friction uh, in North London. So I think if Lons can go there, if they can play some quick attacking football, if they can get behind the Arsenal defence, um, why not? I think they're more than capable of doing it. But a draw might be um, acceptable for both sides. So it could end up with uh, with the honours with honours even. All right. Well, also coming up in Europe, and these are just the other matches coming up. Toulouse versus Union Saint-Gilloise. Um, Toulouse after their win over Liverpool last time out. If they can uh, get the victory here over the Belgian side, they will be right in the hunt. Maccabi Haifa's game against Rennes has been moved to Budapest. It will not be played, obviously, in Israel, but they only found that out three days ago where the game will be played at the Ferenc Pushkas Arena. Marseille take on Ajax in a massive match for Gennaro Gattuso's side, and Lille can book their place in the next round of the conference when they travel to Olympia. JJ, on European football in general, um, not to look at these matches individually, but we know that France is enjoying a good season. Ligue 1 is enjoying a good season in Europe at the moment. Um, the big five leagues could be not just an impression we have, but a reality at the end of this week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really uh, approached uh, crunch period sooner than many of us expected, I think. And we're sort of down now to a fraction of a point. Uh, and coming into these games, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, we could see France overtake uh, the Netherlands and get itself back into the top five in terms of the coefficient, which would be huge considering we're not even at the end of the, the group stage. Obviously, it's one thing getting back into the top five and then staying there. But based on the form that we've seen from the French team so far this season, it's been very encouraging. I mean, let's not forget as well, it could have been a bit better as well. You know, had Lens managed to to get a result against uh, PSV in the, in the last round of games. But uh, generally speaking, it's all been very positive so far. And if Marseille, you know, if Gattuso can get that reaction out of his players, it will be perfect timing because Marseille against Ajax directly, a French club against a Dutch club, uh, you know, could have all the impact. Uh, in terms of uh, you know that positioning, but it's it's been a tough uh, last couple of years for French football on the continental scene. So to see uh, you know Ligue 1 finally living up to uh, the billing, uh, you know, is is great. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, these teams can build on it and, and go on deeper runs so far this season. But it you know really would be a shame at this point to see any of them 
uh, dropping out. You know, I think everyone has had at least one sort of uh, standout result uh, so far in this uh, in this European campaign. Uh, you know, and fingers crossed, we'll we'll get a bit more of that, and then this week, uh, you know, sees France reestablish itself in the top five and stay there for the remainder of the season. You may have noticed that we left Ren out of our weekend roundup. Then that's because we're going to take a closer look at the second Stefan revolution at Roson Park. Julien Stefan, the man back in charge for his second spell, he's back, and his players looked rejuvenated when they dismantled Reims by three goals to one on Sunday. Have they turned the corner? Could this be the start of the revival after poor old Pep Genesio was shown the door? They've been doing it on the continent, but your bread and butter is in the French Championship and our undercover Frenchman in London, Baptiste Reynaud from The Classic Pod, has more on the revolution in Rennes. With traditional powerhouses Marseille and Lyon struggling through their now usual seasonal craziness and challengers Monaco, Lens and Lille at times struggling to find their rhythm, this season should have been one of opportunity for Stade René, whose progress over the last two years with consecutive fourth-place finishes under Bruno Pep Genesio should have placed them in good stead for breaking into the top three. Whilst they'd lost Doku over the summer to Man City and he's tearing up the Premier League, Les Rouges et Noirs had been quietly optimistic as the season kicked off. Their coherent, seasons-long team building had brought in even more quality with Enzo Lefe, Ludovic Blas and Nemanja Matic, big names coming in. Ren had looked ready to take the next step by pushing on for a Champions League spot, although question marks were already being raised as the season kicked off about Pep Genesio's ability to actually lead a team to real success over the long term. Alas, as the season kicked on, Rennes' inconsistencies of the last few seasons under Genesio had not abated. Defensive inexperience and frailties, especially at set pieces, continued to penalise them, whilst their potent Ligue 1 strike force, on paper at least, continued to disappoint, with Kali Muendo and Amin Guiri, one of my favourites in particular, failing to kick on. With a disappointing 13th place after 12 games, Pressure was starting to build up on Pep Genesio, whose previous Ligue 1 stop at Lyon had seen some similar inconsistencies and a similarly talented young side failing to deliver. The defeat on 12th November to his old club, which by the way remains Lyon's only win of the season, had led Genesio and director of football Florian Maurice, also an ex-Lyon head, to discuss a way forward under the pressure they were facing. And despite announcing a desire to work through this and wait for a successful January transfer window to kick things on, Genesio then abruptly announced that he would leave the club. Scrambling for a successor, with a difficult game against Will Steele's Reims to prepare, Rennes announced on 19th November that Genesio's predecessor, Julien Stéphane, would take over at the club until at least the end of the season. This in turn led to internal chaos, with Florian Maurice allegedly threatening to resign due to the decision being taken without his involvement and allegedly being taken by owner and billionaire François Pinault before agreeing to stay. With chaos abating, the question now is whether Rennes have taken a step back by agreeing to the return of Stefan. Now, as mentioned, there appeared to be a growing consensus at the start of the season that Genesio had perhaps taken the club as far as he could. With players' individual and collective performances seemingly hitting a glass ceiling and question marks over his winning mentality, with accusation that he might prefer losing beautifully, as evidenced by the fact that Rennes played some of Lugan's best football over the last two seasons, as had Lyon under him previously, to winning ugly. 
Now, this is a very subjective concept, but one that has plagued Genesio in his managerial career so far. In that sense, seeing Genesio go was perhaps not such a surprise, as the results did not trend upwards after a third of the season in what is usually a difficult third season for managers. But choosing Stefan despite his undoubted qualities does not come without a sense that this is a risky proposition. Stefan was once clearly the up-and-coming star of French football, having taken Rennes to the promised land of winning a trophy by coming back from 2-0 down in the final of the Coupe de France against PSG, and to the Champions League spots, Stefan had left Rennes abruptly, only to emerge at Strasbourg. After a wonderful first season there, his second season saw him be let go by Strasbourg, with the club in real danger of relegation. Stefan is known as tactically astute, a real developer of young talent, as evidenced by the fact he built Rennes' academy into the shining light that it is now, helped by experienced heads and unknowns at the time, such as Franck Hez and Régis Lebris. And he's also part of France's footballing royalty, with his father Guy Stéphane being Didier Deschamps' assistant manager for France. But have Rennes proven ambitious enough with this choice when their exciting young talent may require a more experienced manager at their helm? For what it's worth, we're quite excited to see Stéphane's influence at a club that he knows well, and his first 10 days in charge have not disappointed. Stéphane handed the captaincy to experienced head Steve Mandanda after stalwart Benjamin Bourigeau had struggled with the armband this season. He also set up Rennes in an exciting 3-4-3, which placed Benjamin Bourigeau at right wing-back, where his crossing ability can be devastating, and from where he delivered a goal at the weekend, and allowed a front three of Terrier coming back from injury, Guiri and Calimwendo, a lot of freedom. As importantly, Rennes' defence looked more assured, protected by Matic and with fewer gaps in the centre. It's an encouraging start, so what can we expect from Rennes going forward? Well, in this chaotic season, there's still only nine points behind third. And with plenty of talent at his disposal, Stefan might lead them further back up the table and Sunday might have marked the start of an exciting comeback for a club that objectively is structured for success. Okay, so now it's time for our final episode of the Ligue 1 Legends series on the sides that have won Ligue 1 Uber Eats the Hexagold Trophy, as it's known, in the 21st century. This time, Professor Andreas takes us back to 2016-17, when an emerging generational talent by the name Kylian Mbappe, I think it was, he helped Monaco upset Paris Saint-Germain's title dominance with a superb campaign under Leonardo Jardim, the Portuguese coach, the mastermind there. So let's head back to 2017, when Kiki as he was known then, and maybe still is now to family and friends, um, created or got used to that penchant he has for, for winning trophies. He claimed his first silverware as a professional footballer then, alongside some amazingly good players. Over to you, Andreas. Wednesday, the 3rd of July, 2013. Stade Louis de, the sleepy principality of Monaco, is abuzz with excitement. Not only are Monaco back in Liga, but billionaire owner Dmitry Ribolovlev is splashing the cash like never before. Radamel Falcao and James Rodriguez are among the stars who've just transferred to the millionaire's playground. While the media are engrossed with the big name signings, a 14-year-old kid from the northern suburbs of Paris is driven unnoticed into the stadium. Beyond the gaze of the press, Monaco are sealing arguably the most significant signing in the history of French football. The teenager's name is Killian, and in 2017, he would inspire Monaco to the Ligue 1 title before becoming one of the biggest superstars in world sport. A precocious talent, Mbappe trained at France's famed Clairefontaine Academy, aged 11, 
From then, his career could have gone in many directions. Father Wilfred and mother Faiza wanted Killian to get a good education and learn his trade in Ligue 1. So European giants were rejected, including Killian's favourite club, Real Madrid. The Mbappe clan agreed to move to Lens and Caen, but on both occasions, the deal fell through because the clubs were relegated. That's when Monaco made their move. The clincher was when Killian was told a place in the first team was his for the taking. November 2015, La Tourbie training complex. 16-year-old Mbappe is training with the seniors for the first time. The impact is immediate. Mbappe didn't just burn the older pros for pace. This kid had the power of a player in his 20s, a first touch that bamboozled the most experienced defenders and a finish to match. His debut came just weeks later against Caen, the club that so nearly signed him as a boy. Then in February, the moment the young Killian had dreamed of for so long, the first goal in Ligue 1, a 3-1 win against Troyes, he became the club's youngest ever scorer, beating the record of a certain Thierry Henry. But if Killian hoped to become a Monaco regular, he would be left disappointed. Coach Leonardo Jardim was cautious, and Mbappe made just two starts in the 15-16 campaign. Mbappe even dropped from the under-19s. Coaches frustrated with the player's lack of defensive contribution. Mbappe still had a lot to prove. Friday, the 12th of August, 2016. Fresh from winning the Euro under-19s, Mbappe forced his way into the first team for the opening match of the season. But disaster strikes. Just before half-time, Mbappe is left stunned after an aerial challenge with Gangon defender Christoph Kerbrat. Father Wilfred is concerned as a concussed Mbappe is helped off the pitch by medical staff. Monaco are two down, but Mbappe's replacement, another talented youngster, Bernardo Silva, inspires a Monaco comeback. While Mbappe is sidelined, Monaco chalk up impressive wins against Nantes and PSG. Some start to ask, is this really the moment for Mbappe? The Mbappe clan was furious that the youngster was being sidelined. The truth was that Jardim had built a superb attacking outfit even without Mbappe. Youngsters Bernardo Silva, Fabinho, Thomas Lamar and Timoe Bakayoko thrived in Jardim's 4-4-2 formation. New signing Camille Glick was a rock at the back. Up front, the inspired Falcao was undroppable, while Valérie Germain and Guido Carrillo were proving more than able sidekicks. Matters came to a head in September when Mbappe was dropped from the squad that travelled to face Tottenham in the Champions League. A furious Mbappe refused to play in the UEFA Youth League. Father Wilfred was equally frustrated. We'll have to think about Killian's future during the January transfer window, he tells Lekeep. Silva and Lamar are outstanding. Monaco outplay Spurs. Then they beat Mets 7-0 away, leaving Mbappe's future at Monaco in doubt. Friday, the 21st of October, 2016, Monaco back from a long Champions League trip to Moscow. Germain and Carrillo are in form but rested against Montpellier. Mbappe back and takes his chance with both hands. He's hungry and unplayable, winning an early penalty, heading in another before an assist in a 6-2 rout. Mbappe no longer the best-kept secret in Ligue 1. The media were lauding the new golden boy of French football. Mbappe and Monaco went from strength to strength after that hammering of Montpellier. In February, Mbappe scored a hat-trick in less than 50 minutes in a 5-0 home drubbing of Metz. He won European recognition after a thrilling Champions League win against Manchester City. This exciting young Monaco team were taking France by storm, taking top spot on match day 20 before winning 12 matches on the bounce to land a first title since the year 2000. 
Jardim's team was sensational. 107 goals, 95 points. They achieved what many thought was impossible, cracking PSG's dominance of French football. The league was won by eight points. The title sealed with a victory against Saint-Étienne. Fittingly, Mbappe scoring the opening goal with a shimmy and cool finish that would become his trademark. 15 league goals in 16 starts, with 26 goals in all competitions for the teenager. As Mbappe lifted the Ligue 1 trophy, few doubted this would be the first of many honours for this generational player. What no one knew was that this would be Mbappe's finale at Monaco. That 16-17 season, a fleeting fusion of a magnificent Mbappe and Monaco. Fantastic stuff, Andreas. Yes, what a team that was under Leonardo Jardim. Um, there was also, and I'll just mention this quickly, a certain Valère Germain in that side who uh, now plays his football here for MacArthur FC in Sydney's West. So not all of them went on to bigger and better things, um, but winning a league untitled certainly was a, a crowning moment in all those careers. And you look at the likes of Andrea Raggi, who came through the second division, um, under Ranieri in that Monaco side. JJ, what are your memories of that Monaco season? I think it was uh, you know, hard to really not fall in love with that Monaco side at that moment in time. And it, you know, it really felt like there was a, a very small window to, to truly enjoy that team because everybody knows with the Monaco project, as it still is today, uh, you know, there was never really going to be any hope of keeping that squad together for too long. But I think probably, uh, you know, my fondest uh, memory of uh, sort of the, the Monaco of that time is the fantastic run that they had in Europe. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the importance of having the young club sort of living up to the billing uh, on the European stage. Uh, you know, and I fondly remember them making that run all the way to, to coming up against Juventus, sadly falling short. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it really felt at that moment in time that Monaco really could be, uh, you know, a, a sort of long term or at least a medium term, you know, title challenger to PSG. Obviously, we know what happened next. Uh, the squad got picked apart by a number of, uh, you know, European giants. But there were moments where it really felt as if, you know, Monaco could be here to stay uh, and sort of one of the teams that the PSG would have to work a lot harder to, to see off. Uh, you know, and fingers crossed that, that Monaco do get themselves back to, to a, a similar stage uh, to that at some point in the future. Uh, you know, we know that they're sort of building towards uh, a return to the Champions League at this moment in time, certainly regular uh, European qualification. Uh, you know, but I think those were extremely heady days when you look at some of the, the phenomenal talents that were on show and sort of where they went uh, next after leaving uh, the Principality. You're listening to CBS Viacom's French football expert, Jonathan Johnson. Don't forget, if you like what you're hearing, click subscribe on your podcast platform so that every two weeks, Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast, falls straight into your inbox. You'll hear the little ping on a Monday evening as you're ready to head home from work or morning, depending on where you are around the world. And you can catch up with all the news and also the features that we have on the show this year all about the French First Division Ligue 1. Well, now it's time for our sociopathic French football quiz, Deja Who, which has you, the listeners, scrambling for cover from my bombardment of cryptic clues, scanning your French football memory database and hopefully identifying the player I am talking about. If you can do it, the reward is a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey, which for November 
was a Kevin Danzo RC Lance jersey. So it's time to announce the winner. But first, the answers to our two questions from November. They were Etienne Capu was first. And the second one, a player who didn't spend that long in Ligue 1, but one had a fairly glorious club career at any rate, missed out on the big prizes with his national team. Christian Panucci actually spent uh, a season on loan from Inter, I think it was, first at Chelsea and then with Monaco, or two half seasons on loan at Monaco. The winner was Tom Keeling, our US listener and uh, long-time listeners of the pod will remember that Tom came on his honeymoon to France and I actually caught up with him at the Parc des Princes. I hope life is treating you well, Tom. He took time out from stuffing turkeys and limiting pumpkin pie consumption to send us the correct answer. Happy Thanksgiving. All the same to you, Tom, and we'll be in touch to arrange the delivery of your prize. So now for our first December question, which uh, could get you a Remy Cabela Lil jersey. So there'll be another question in two weeks' time. If you think you know the answer to this, send us an email with the answer to league1podcast at gmail.com. Here it comes. Are you ready? Who am I? Hailing from the suburbs of Paris, I made my professional debut in the south of France, helping my club to the championship title before beginning an odyssey that would take me to another four different countries around the world. Over the course of my illustrious club career, I won Ligue 1, the English Premier League, La Liga and the UEFA Champions League, as well as the World Cup and the Euro. A number of my individual records still stand to this day. My coaching career has so far failed to hit the heights of my playing days, but perhaps that could all change in the summer of 2024. So who am I? And what could I help my country win for the second time in history next year? These are often very difficult quizzes. I've taken pity on you all uh, this week because I think this is quite a simple one. I assume most of you uh, listening in have already got it. So we're expecting a lot of answers to the the quiz this time. If you think you know it, league1podcast at gmail.com and you could go into the running for a Remy Cabela Lil Jersey. Well, every now and again, you come across a player who does things on his own terms. Media spotlight, yeah. Big money moves, yeah. Scintillating on-ball talent, attitude, and an abiding love of the hometown. This is your man. We've been talking about none other than Montpellier's legendary playmaker, dead ball specialist, the man, the myth, the legend, Teji Savanier, Jonathan Johnson, has more. Montpellier might be playing catch-up on the rest of Ligue 1 given their game in hand against Clermont, which is to be replayed this week. But their talisman, Teji Savanier, is as key as ever to Michel Desacarian's side. The 31-year-old schemer is back with his hometown club, having spent time with nearby Al Avignon and Nîmes Olympique. But there is deeper reasoning in why Savanier has never strayed too far from his family's nest. My family comes before my career, revealed the gifted deep-lying playmaker to RMC recently. The most important thing is to be good with my family. I could have received much more money playing from Milan, but I would have been unhappy. A player who is unhappy in life reflects that unhappiness on the pitch. I feel very good in Montpellier, where I'm at home. 
I still live with my family in our neighborhood, and it's all I need. Do not need to go to a bigger club to feel good about myself or my life. It just makes no sense to me. Viewed in this context, Savanier's career starts to make much more sense. Lapayette's captain grew up in the Romani community on the outskirts of the city where his family is settled. A youth academy product with his beloved Montpellier, path to a starting 11 role and iconic status at Stade de la Mosson has not come easily. Savanier came through the Montpellier Youth Academy, which produced a golden generation with Eunice Belhanda, Remy Cabella, Jonas Martin, Abdelhamid El-Kautari, and Benjamin Stambouli. And that side won the prestigious Gambardella Youth Cup in 2009 and would form a key part of the 2012 squad, which triumphed in Ligue 1 ahead of Qatar-backed PSG just three years later. Savanier was not part of either of those successes, though, missing out on the win over Nantes in the 2009 final. He was not offered professional terms and instead left for Al Avignon in Ligue 2, where he developed a reputation as being a set-piece expert, which Montpellier's rivals Nîmes recognised in 2015 when they moved for him. I've worked on it since I was a child, said Savanier of his free-kick technique. I have a way of hitting the ball that is a bit different, perhaps. Make the ball dip heavily behind the defence. It's difficult to explain, but I try to hit the ball hard somewhere around the instep, hitting through it so it creates minimal spin. My teammates know where it's going to go. Joining Nîmes brought Savanier back closer to his family, and it quickly brought strong form on the pitch. The debut season, which ranked him as the team's top assist provider, as they improbably avoided relegation despite a substantial points deduction owing to a match-fixing scandal. It wasn't without its challenges as Savanier had to ditch his fast food diet, which he had grown accustomed to with Arles Avignon, but it paid off in terms of performance, with two consecutive seasons leading the Ligue 2 assists chart as Nîmes made their way towards Ligue 1. Marco Verratti is no longer plying his trade in France with PSG, but there were parallels between the Italian past master and Savanier, with both lighting up the championnat with their exquisite technique. I told him that he is really good, and that he played very well, said Verratti after coming up against Savanier in Liga. You can see that he understands football very well. He plays the kind of football that I like. Everything he does has a purpose. He never looks to just get rid of the ball he wants to play. He's a great player. During four years with Neiman, an impressive first season in France's top flight, which ended in ninth place finish, Montpellier moved to bring Savanier home for a record at 10 million euros. Oh, this is where I feel most grounded, told L'Equipe of his emotional homecoming. Nothing can go wrong for me there. It's where I was born and it's where I will die. We're among the gypsies and we do our own thing. It's not something that you can really explain. We play petanque in the afternoon and the loser goes to the butcher to buy the meats for the barbecue. In the evening, we play guitar outdoors. And I, I don't think there are many footballers who are lucky enough to live this life, certainly not professionally. There is, however, another famous example to have hailed from France's gypsy communities. André Pierre Gignac is now a legend in Mexico with Tigres, but the prolific Frenchman was born in Martigues of partial Romani descent. He told Sofut that he considers himself an adopted Manouche, a subgroup of Roma who have lived in France since the 18th century. In 2021, Savanier and Gignac teamed up to represent France at the Olympic Games in Japan as two of Le Bleu's three overage players. Although it was short-lived and ended with a group stage exit, it was fitting recognition for Savanier, who's not represented France at senior level 
unlike Shinyak. I'm just happy to find myself in such a position among such big names, said Savanier in 2019 when ranked just behind the likes of Rolati, Kylian Mbappe and Marquinhos by L'Equipe. I'm not thinking about that sort of thing when I'm playing football. I prefer to just enjoy myself. Savanier remains one of Ligue 1's most underrated talents and a delight to watch for purists everywhere. Long may that continue to be the case. Thank you for that, JJ. Yeah, a, fan, a fantastic figure, Teji Savanier. I love the Marco Verratti uh, episode as well because they really were similar, similar style players and, you know, talent recognises talent, if you like. Um, another thing I loved about Teji Savanier was that Nîmes and Montpellier are bitter, bitter rivals. I think it's very rare that a player makes that 54K journey from one of those towns to the other. And the simple fact that the whole time he was playing at Nîmes, he stayed living in Montpellier, as though just the, the thumbing his nose to all the Nîmes fans who couldn't help but love him because he was their best player, but at the same time clearly still loved his hometown Montpellier more than, more than the arch rival. Andreas, what, what, what can you tell us about your love of Teji? I, I do. I think he's, he's a unique player and he's, he's like a maverick, isn't he? He's like those players in the 70s and 80s who does it on his own terms. Uh, when he came back to Montpellier, he was, he was carrying a bit of timber, as we say. He lost six kilos, uh, which I think has improved his game. But don't forget, he's turned down moves to Milan, to Sevilla, um, he, you know, which is so unusual in this day and age. And you don't know, you never know what you're going to get with him. I mean, he's got a short fuse, hasn't he? We've seen red cards. We've seen him, you know, kick out and do some weird things. But when he's good, he is exceptionally good. And, and I suppose you could ask, why has he not played more for France? He played in the Olympic team, but just, you know, part of a, of a generation. I think if he'd have been any other country, he, he would have been a, a big player on the international stage. But a, a, a superb individual talent and, and an unpredictable one. I always enjoy watching him. You're listening to Ligue 1 commentator Andreas Evagora, Jonathan Johnson as well, the French football expert, and myself, Robbie Thompson. If you want to get involved in the conversation, you'll find us at Ligue 1 underscore ENG on Twitter or X. And, of course, there is League1.com as well for all the latest news and videos and everything else you need to know to follow Le Championnat. Well, we're almost done, but we still have time just to look ahead to the next two weeks of action as we are edged towards the Christmas break, which returns this year, of course, because last year's World Cup threw everything into a, into a crazy spin. We even had various boxing days in France for the first time ever in, in football, but uh, it's a return to normal. We've only got 18 clubs. We can afford to have a little Christmas break, which we will be ha having this year, but before then, Rounds 14 and 15. Um, JJ, we've got some big games coming up next weekend. Nice are on the road to Nantes. Loire entertained Paris Saint-Germain, and there are some connections there between the, the Loire backroom staff and the bosses running that club at the moment, Mathieu Bodmer in particular, who was a, grew up a Paris Saint-Germain fan and then played for the club after a long career, playing for the likes of Lille and Monaco and, 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 and elsewhere. Um, Monaco take on Montpellier in a match that they have to win to, to right the ship as well. And Marseille, well, they need to bounce back against Rennes. What do you like from round 14, JJ? Uh, so much to like. I mean, I think it's difficult to look past that Marseille-Rennes clash. 
But equally, uh, you know, I think Nantes-Nice could be quite interesting as well because some unexpected teams have come unstuck against Nantes already this season and that could be another test for, for this Nice side because, uh, you know, we've seen how great they can be defensively, but to get them, uh, you know, sort of scoring prolifically has still been a challenge for, for Farioli so far. So I, I think if I was to pick one of those, it would have to be Marseille uh, versus Rennes, though. Uh, you know, a lot to like. Uh, Julien Stefan still trying to to stamp his mark on this Rennes side, see if he can get them upwardly mobile in uh, as quick a, a turnaround as possible. But this Marseille side, when I mean, we talked about it earlier, Gattuso really needs to get them not just performing well, but picking up the points as well. Where better to do that than in a big league on clash uh, in front of a, a full Stade Velodrome, you'd imagine. There is also Lens versus Olympique Lyonnais, which, uh, well, every other year you'd think was going to be a massive clash as well for European places. It could be a massive clash for both sides coming into that one as well. Reims take on Strasbourg, Toulouse-Lorient and uh, Brest versus Clermont as well coming up next weekend. And then, Andreas, in round 15, we've got Rennes versus Monaco, Paris Saint-Germain at home to Nantes, Nice take on Reims, which... Uh, is the match of the young coaches on the bench with Farioli and Still as well. And two sides that are trying to be archetypal modern football clubs, I think, moving forward, both with uh, illustrious pasts as well, particularly a Rounce club. Perhaps that's an idea for heading back in, in, and looking ahead to the, the history of the game, Andreas, coming, looking in, in weeks to come. Maybe some of the classic old French clubs like Stade de Reims who made those Champions League finals back in the 1950s. Anyway, I digress. Um, Lyon will be back in action against Toulouse and Marseille are on the road to Lorient. Week 15, Andreas, take your pick. Yeah, um, a, a couple of matches stand out. I think Marseille again. Um, one, one thing that stood out from that Strasbourg match was that Marseille were just, not to put a too, too fine a point on it, they were just exhausted at the end. It, they were, really didn't seem fit enough to me. And, um, you know, obviously the, the style has changed on the... Well, that's one of the things that Gattuso exactly, said, wasn't yeah. it? One he, of the things Gattuso said, who, what's been going on here? And this club can't play. Yeah. They can only play for 60 minutes. And, and he wants a, a higher intensity style of football, doesn't he? So, I, you know, it, it seems a strange thing to say in, in or shortly December. You know, is he going to get his team fitter and fit enough to, 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 to win games? I mean, Rennes and Lorient, you know... Two, you know, Lorient is starting to scrap for their first division survival. They're going to be two tricky games, Lorient, um, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time. And Lyon, we've got to go back to Lyon. I mean, they're going to have Toulouse at home. It's a relegation six-pointer, Robbie. Uh, it's strange, strange to say, but the pressure really is going to be on Lyon to win that game. So two really very important games for two of the biggest clubs in France. Well, just before we let you go, I will, I will raise an interesting point that I was thinking about this week. We hear... Coaches often talk about the, the the number of matches that we're asking players to play these days, and and club coaches are often pointing the finger towards national teams because we've seen national team windows now are three, even four. I think it's going to be four matches next year, isn't it? Aren't they making a a, a giant international window in September or or October, heading into moving forward? Anyway, there's there's a lot of football matches being played at the moment. We saw, I think it was Jules Koundé, the latest player to come out during the week, the, the French defender, and just saying, we're being asked to play so much. All the injuries, players are getting more and more serious injuries because of the intensity of these games. We know that 
Um, Raphael Varane has spoken out about it as well. I think it's interesting that it's French players that take this stand because we know France as a country is a very political country and you stand up for what you believe in. You're not afraid to take a, a position in, uh, in things you believe in. But I think it is curious that we see um, that French players are the ones that are, that are being public about this at this stage. And if you're looking at it from a, from a negative point of view, people would say, oh, the, 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 the French players, they don't know what it is to work hard and all this sort of thing. It's not. I think they're really saying, "Look, this is this is a dangerous period. We are we are footballers, and we are being asked to play at such a, a so much that it's becoming dangerous." And I raise this because of what you just said, Andreas, about this Marseille side, you know, not being able to keep going to finish matches. It's because nowadays, if you don't lay the foundations, if you're not physically, you can't take on a side which is physically. At its absolute prime, and modern football now, you can have a, a a team like Reims, who don't have any big star players, but are very well oiled. They have players that are fit, that play a high pressing game, that will give absolutely everything, work themselves into the ground. And if you're, you know, not quite one hundred percent fit, or you have a an older mentality of of you know, we'll play football a certain way. It won't stand up to the rigors of the of the modern game. You have to be one hundred percent fit. And um, JJ, I'll just ask you uh, your thoughts on the, on this issue because I think there's a there's a feeling in in football now that the players they they're complaining. People don't understand the intensity with which football is played at now. It is it is nothing to do with even fifteen years ago. Let alone when you look back to the the 1990s when goalkeepers were still allowed to pick up the ball with their hands from a back pass. I mean, all the rules have been changed so that the game flows and is intense and and it is brutal on the players. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think as well, it's quite telling when you've got somebody as young as uh, Jules Koundé, um, you know, coming out and, and basically pointing out exactly the, the same thing just recently over the international break. Uh, it's very, very difficult to, to, to make an argument for, uh, you know, increasing what is already a, a you know, a very, very uh, heavy uh, schedule in terms of uh, matches played that we expect the, the players to, to, to be fit for. Yet, it seems to be the, the only ideas that people have in terms of innovating, uh, you know, the sport seem to be adding to this ridiculous calendar instead of sort of trimming the fat in, in certain places. Uh, and it, it is reaching a moment now, I think, where you're seeing this explosion of uh, ACL injuries, for example, where, you know, at some point there is going to be uh, a tipping point, I think, because at the moment uh, the players, especially the younger players, are just getting absolutely run into the ground. Uh, you know, and I think perhaps really unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't like to, to, to sort of, uh, you know, be the <laughs> sort of the, the bearer of, of sort of bad news or a bad omen, but it does feel like, you know, unless there was potentially some sort of spate of maybe career ending injuries, uh, you know, that the people will actually sort of wake up to the fact that the schedule is too demanding uh, at this moment in time. Uh, and it's detrimental, not just to the to the current players, but for players, you know, who are coming into the game, uh, you know, and hoping to make a career of it in the future. Andreas, you grew up watching football in England in the in the in the 80s, um, when teams only made one substitution, perhaps in a game, mm. players played 40 matches in a season played the entire season, never got injured, drank 10 pints after the game. I mean, it was a different time when the legends of football 
were were written. You know, it was a completely almost a different yeah, sport. It, it was. I mean, to use an example from the team I grew up supporting, Arsenal in 1980, uh, Arsenal played 42 games. They got to the final of the Cup Winners' Cup. They got to the final of the FA Cup. They played five match, four replays of one FA Cup tie. I think they played more than, I think, 70 matches. Anyway, it was with 15 players. Um, look, there's two sides of the ledger. One is, in those days, the pitches were terrible. The tackles were X-rated. But if you look at it, as you were alluding to, Robbie, it was slow. You know, players had time on the ball, back to the goalkeeper. You know, it was it was not at all the pace and intensity that we have today. In addition to, to that intensity, one thing that players and coaches talk about is the traveling. Now, people say, oh, they're traveling business class. And yeah, they are. But it's a time difference. Look at um, Marquinhos, right? He came back injured. He would have arrived back in Paris Thursday morning, our time. He would have gone to bed uh, about one o'clock local time. That's about 6 a.m. Now, you know, he's a young kid. Yeah, he can go to bed at 6 a.m. But are you going to be at that top, top level, basically having not spent, not slept tonight? No. So um, it is a very important issue. Uh, the game is phys- more physical. It's faster. It's quicker. And the traveling time zones, they all take their toll. And it, it's going to be... Uh, an important issue and, and a growing one because as Jonathan says all federations seem to do is just add more com- there's so many more competitions now longer competitions Nations League and you could say hats off to Liga for reducing the, the workload on French players by going from 22 to 18 teams but apart from that it's just more and more matches and the World Cup is going to be 48 teams yeah. in in two years time as well well three years time one to one to look forward to all the same. Let's not let's not argue about the World Cup getting bigger and better. You're listening to Andreas Evagora, Jonathan Johnson, myself, Robbie Thompson. Twitter at League One underscore E N G. We're here with the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast, Le Bourgeois, on all your favorite platforms. Like, subscribe, follow, and recommend. And of course, get on and check out all the latest news on League1.com. That is it for us. Le Bourgeois will be back in two weeks' time to look back at rounds 14 and 15, as well as all the European action. And we'll even have a look ahead to rounds 16 and 17, because that's right, we're almost halfway through the season. There'll also be another chance for you to win a Remy Cabela Lil jersey in the Deja Who competition. And we'll be conducting our regular features, player profiles, and interviews and all the rest. So until then, on behalf of the entire Le Bourgeois team, have a great week. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>